the Police Federation official podcast. Hello and welcome to the Police Federation official podcast. As ever, your opportunity as members to get those questions and issues out there to the national chairman. And of course, over the weeks, a variety of guests. We do this, of course, in the 100th year since the Federation began. Lots of topics over these episodes to get into, from pensions to pay, campaigns to conduct, all on the agenda. I should also remind you, of course, that any points you would like to add in, then you can do so via Twitter or email. We'll include as many as we possibly can in future episodes. Alongside John Apter, the National Chair for the Police Federation, on this episode, Peggy Lamont is with us, National Board Member and Lead in Equality for the Police Federation. Welcome to you both. John, firstly, it's, it's been, every time we speak, you've had an incredible sort of busy time in the build-up to each episode. Let's just take a moment to talk about driving here, because yep. this has been absolutely key as as part of a an issue the federation have been talking about for a long long time just explain what the story is and what's since happened absolutely um, uh, thanks a lot ian yeah the the driving for pursuits and response are our members those police officers who are trained highly trained in driving matters have been legally vulnerable for far too long i mean it's been over seven years now seven years that the police federation has been campaigning to bring about a change in the law to give better protection to those who are trained in emergency driving. And this isn't about saying that drivers, police drivers, can do as they please. Um, Yeah, there's still accountability, but at the moment their training is not taken into account whatsoever, and that's perverse. So they are judged as any other driver. So just for for anyone listening to this who's not a police officer, doesn't know this part of the law, if you're on an emergency call, you have blue lights, siren, you're going down the street, you're chasing you know, one of the bad guys, as it were, yeah. something happens, then that officer at that point is treated in exactly the same as I would be. Absolutely. There is no consideration that this person has gone through you know, some robust training. All of that becomes irrelevant in a court of law. Absolutely. I, and, the, and what we look at is the definition of dangerous driving, and that is where the driving would fall far below that of expected of a careful and competent motorist. So when you look at a, a police vehicle or indeed an ambulance or a, or a fire engine on, a, on an emergency run, then I say to people, take away the, uh, the stripes, take away the lights, the sirens. Imagine it's just a Tesco's delivery van or Asda or Waitrose, any other, uh, <laughs> you know. Many uh, are available. Uh, absolutely. And treat them all the same. That's how we, we are compared. And that is perverse. So the Police Federation has been working tirelessly for this. And certainly over recent years, Tim Rogers, our pursuit lead, has lived and breathed this and done an yeah. immense amount of work. Uh, And only last week, the Home Secretary issued a ministerial statement of intent, which was in effect supporting a change in legislation, which would give officers better protection. Now, some people have said to me, because sometimes we just can't win, and some people have said, well, that's not enough. You need a change in legislation. I agree. But to have a ministerial statement of support from the Home Secretary is significant. It really does uh, push us further along this journey. Uh, But my plea now to the MPs, to the Home Secretary, to others, is we have to find the time, the legislative time, to bring about this change. Because without that, all we have is a letter uh, giving us some nice warm words. Uh, And when you hear the individual stories of officers who've been caught up, um, through no fault of their own, but have found themselves on the, the rough end of this, the current legislation. You, know, mm. you, you think, well, what, what 
parliamentarian would look at those kind of stories and Absolutely. think, you know, I can't, I shouldn't do anything about this. Indeed. And most of the MPs I've spoken to are 100% supportive. And those officers, in, you're right, when they they are investigated, their lives are turned upside down, both professionally and privately. What they're saying to me and others is, I was doing what I was trained to do. No more, no less. I was doing what I was expected of me and what I was trained to do. And for that, I am either uh, being investigated for misconduct matters or they end up in a crown court. Sure. That's just wrong and it's got to change. So things are moving. They are moving. We are it's getting not a swift there. process, is it? The, no, it's not a swift parliamentary system. No, it's not. But we are getting there. Sure. And, you know, I, I thank uh, our colleagues for their support and indeed the public. The public are sensible when it comes to things like this. Uh, and they are very much behind us. On the last episode on the Police mm. Federation podcast, we, I, I think, revealed for the first time at that point about what w- was happening with the Dorchester Hotel. Now, this yes. is where, of course, the Police Bravery Awards have historically taken place for many years and you made a big decision just to explain for those who didn't see this story what happened and what action you took well you're right this is a um, a big event in the police federation calendar it's where we recognize the bravest of the brave it's a fantastic event and we hold it um, at the dorchester hotel the dorchester is owned by the sultan of brunei and shortly before the decision was taken the sultan had introduced a law which meant that uh, gay men would be stoned to death and gay women would be lashed. Uh, they'd receive lashes and corporal punishment would be brought in. Barbaric, uh, horrific. Um, yeah, we're not, we're not re- quoting regime. a Monty Python sketch here. No. This is actually it's, happening it, it, in the 21st century it is. on planet Earth. Absolutely. And when I, I heard of this, you know, my own moral compass said we can't be associated with... This is not, by the way, you know, about the staff of the Dorchester, of who course. work at the Dorchester. Brilliant people who, uh, you know, I've got no doubt yeah. are devastated by what's happened. But we couldn't hold such a prestigious event at the Dorchester. And I wouldn't want either myself or my organisation to be uh, linked to it. So uh, we made the decision to cancel the event at the Dorchester and we found a suitable uh, alternative. And um, it's absolutely the right thing to do. And and huge support. Let's bring on on this point uh, Peggy Lamont in, as I mentioned. Peggy is national board member and lead in equality. I've got that right, Peggy? That's correct. Okay, so I mean, this this obviously falls into kind of territory that you are very much um, advocating and interested in. It does. Um, what I'm really pleased about is that with absolutely no prompting as an organisation, we were able to immediately recognise that it was a vulnerability. Um, it wasn't something that we wanted our colleagues to think that we had anything to do with or wanted in any way, shape or form. Um, and we were quickly able to show that with action. So I'm pleased that 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 happened really in terms of the, i mean the wider question about the role i mean you, you will be aware when people hear about sort of equality roles you know there is a few people a few stragglers at the back whose eyes roll and go what's that all about equality well, what's the why is that important well we know we, i think we sort of know why it is how far has it all come well i think we were talking before the podcast about um if you look back a period in history we'll see great changes have taken place and equality is certainly one where if you look 40 years in the past I don't think anybody would have imagined we'd have been in a place we're at now but there's still work to do I think the recent Me Too movement for instance shows you know that we've perhaps only scratched the surface in some areas Mm. Um, and it just needs a voice really we need to make sure that those with protected characteristics are given an amplified voice to make sure that we are aware of and dealing with issues that affect 
people with protected characteristics on a day-to-day basis. And is the police one of those areas? I know certainly in the area of journalism where... You know, similar conversations take place about diversity, about encouraging people from different backgrounds. Because, of course, you know, if there are minority groups in whatever form who who sort of often look at certain professions and think, no, that is that's stuffed full of sort of you know, white blokes and therefore straight white blokes, mostly probably not. But that's the perception. And therefore, that's not something for me. And that's the kind of the wall you have to break down, really, isn't it, is allowing people to realise, actually, that professions such as the police and those that are in the police is inclusive and it is you know, beyond the stereotype of, you know, life on Mars, as it were. Yeah, and I think with, again, I mean, there's a huge willingness within forces and within the Federation to demonstrate to people who are both looking at becoming police officers or becoming Federation representatives that we are... We want to be as diverse as the communities we serve and the people that we're representing. Um, but we are a way away from it. And I think so. I think all forces are making changes to try and encourage that level of diversity. Um, and we as a federation have taken huge steps in our last electoral process to make sure that we were as quickly representative of the people that we represent as a whole as we could be. There will be some people listening to this saying, Hang on a second, Peggy. We've got the head of state is a woman. The prime minister is a woman. Britain's top cop is a woman. What are you talking about? Yay. (laughs) Yay for positive role models. Um, (laughs) But still, we're just not there. I'm sorry. You only need to look at the gender pay gap and the pension pay gap. Women tend to to sort of plateau at a level within organisations and find it hard to progress to the top levels without usually a huge deal of sacrifice and it shouldn't be about leaving part of yourself behind yeah i was gonna on on that point i I suppose there's two things here there's one about just getting more women into the job Mm -hmm. and then there's the what what happens once you're in the job and your chances of promotion your chances of growing your chances of you know having a lifestyle choice that doesn't somehow bring your career to a crunching end just because you decided the obvious example to have a kid for example things like that so it's not just a case of numbers it's what happens with those numbers yeah it's a nuanced conversation it's not as straightforward as just looking at figures or taking a picture and saying this you know it's fine um it's you know you have to dig in deeper and find out has it got but i mean i'd I'd imagine when you're in that role and the kind of role that you do you'd be forget i could understand why there are probably days you think nothing is changing here you're banging your head against a brick wall thinking my you know when you watch the telly every senior police officer on the telly now you know is, is almost a female because drama is trying to advocate that and probably quite useful maybe to the wider conversation but, but in reality, that isn't replicated anywhere near. And just because you know, we have Cressida Dick, as I mentioned a second ago, but in fact, if you go through most police forces around the country, you won't find that sort of same seniority being taken up by females. No, there isn't. But I think chiefs are all aware, and I've seen it on Twitter, actually, my own chief constable from West Midlands has very strongly advocated that there must be some barrier between your average police officer and becoming a top-ranked police officer because they know that we've got excellent people throughout the organisation of both genders but it tends to be men that get those top posts so they they recognise that there's an issue there it's a lot about how we fix it. And you'd want that representation within the federation as well? Absolutely and I'm really pleased that on the national board now we have the highest number of women that we've ever had and I hope that will show that we are uh, you know open and available for everybody to join us. Why is there I mean certainly in you know, in politics, there is a... I mean, this is probably not the answer, but I certainly know that some people say, well, 
and it's a stereotype to, to the detriment of men, this, because you know, people often say, you know, in politics, you've got to have a mad ego, you've got to be loud, you've got to be impenetrable, you've got to be unreasonable, you've got to be, you know, frankly, a little bit unhinged to want to be a politician. And that's why some women don't go in for it, because they see that and think, why? for the same reason, most men also don't go in for it. So it's a certain type of man rather than male itself as a generic term. Honestly, most Fed reps come into being a Fed rep because they've got into trouble at some point. We've helped them out by, via representatives and then they go and think, actually, I want to be able to do that for my colleagues. I don't want that to happen to somebody else. Unlike that for women, they tend to come to us because they've had some sort of discriminatory mm. behaviour towards them or they see unfairness within the organisation and they want to help fix that. And so that's what we want to encourage more of. But I think all the same things that play out for women in other organisations apply to women wanting to be fed reps. They tend to be carers, they've got an awful lot that they're trying to juggle and actually have we looked particularly like somewhere that's a good place for women to yeah. be in the last 10 years? Maybe not. John, did you want to come in on that? Uh, yeah, I, I think when we look at uh, certainly women in policing and equality is far, far broader than uh, mm-hmm. women in policing and I'm sure, Peg, you'll talk about that. You look at the Metropolitan and they are celebrating 100 years of women in policing this year. And I do think as an organisation, we look at people like the Commissioner of the Met, you know, my Chief Constable's female, Olivia Pinckney, you know, Prime Minister's a female. And I think then we're almost guilty of saying, oh, job complete. But it's far from that. And I always use the analogy for me that I joined 26 years ago. My tutor was a female, Jane Watts, Sergeant Jane Watts, still in the job brilliant brilliant officer an inspirational officer it's not because she was a woman she was inspirational it's because she of what she went through to be where she was Mm. and the guidance that she gave me and this is 26 years ago which even then you know far fewer police women in the organization so strong women in policing are essential and we are far far better than we've ever been before but just because we have a commissioner who's a female just because we have some other chiefs who are females, and not many, um, doesn't mean to say the job's done. Far from it. And I think we're at risk of, of slipping back because we almost have, you know, rubbed our hands and said, yeah. haven't we done well? Because you, you could have that situation. You could even have a 50-50 split in something like the Federation. But if the 50% females feel that, hang on, I'm still feeling like I'm a visitor here mm. rather than part of it. I don't feel I'm either taken seriously. I still feel like there's an old boys club that's that's kind of um, running things in any institution this is this could be anywhere if that's the sense you have then the job is still incomplete it's a journey though and like john says you know women aren't the only protected characteristic group that are struggling with very similar issues actually well i was going to mention that about disability and that's a really tricky one isn't it because of course you know is there a point and i i'm careful how i'm even asking this question you know, is there a point where a disability would preclude you completely for that kind of job, as it would with the army or something like that? I mean, if you are, you know, if, if you have a certain condition, one would assume that would mean that sadly you can't join the police service. I mean, and not in all cases. We have people join the police with disabilities, actually in quite great numbers, which might surprise people. Yep. Um, not, not only are they joining, they are flourishing. So it's important to know that you can join the police with an existing disability or if you become disabled, join your service and and absolutely find a space and a place to serve the public. Mm. But I think for disabled people, the challenges tend to be that just life is more difficult for Mm. them on a day-to-day basis. So they might be able to come into work and deliver a great service to the public, but actually when they get home at night, they're not able to do anything else except for run to bed and fall asleep the next day hours, and that's them done. So 
and, and there's loads. Of, I mean, I could give you so much conversation around disability and policing. I think it's invisible at the moment in terms that a lot of police officers are scared to tell the organisation that they are carrying a disability because they think it might be career-ending mm. or they're worried about what will happen. And also because, actually, we still have quite a macho culture, regardless of gender. Uh, police officers are expected to be over and above an average member of the public. And they're culture changes that we need to look at carefully, I think. Is it moving in that direction? We don't hear much about this side of it. You know, you tend to think, well, either people with a disability, if it's overtly physical, would not join the police in the first place. And those that do and have a maybe not even a public facing conventional role, another role within policing, everything's okay. It's not a, you know, we talk about the gender issue more than we talk about the disability one, I would suggest. Yeah, we do. But that's something I would really like to change. Because for me, having observed policing for a long time, I think that it it is people with disabilities that are afraid of what's going to happen if they fess up and say I'm disabled and I think it's a problem that with um, austerity and resourcing we are going to fall into and if somebody doesn't raise the alarm bells and say actually we need to really think carefully about how we're going to include people with disabilities forces are going to come a cropper. And there is a I suppose there's another kind of wider point as well about workload and demand that, that, that surrounds I mean John we've spoken dozens of times on this podcast countless times on the radio about the you know difficulty with the fewer police officers around the pressure that puts on you you, you it's not the job you the sort of job you leave at the door when you go home at night particularly if you've had a pretty grisly rough day so all, all of that sort of feeds into everything we're talking about as well doesn't it because you know you you still have another statistic when you talk about women in policing you know if you look at you know who's taking care of the house and bringing up the kids Every figure, every piece of research still shows that even in a you know a, a, a relationship where there's a couple, the, the woman conventionally in that male-female relationship is doing more of that kind of heavy lifting. And so that would feed into the problems as well, wouldn't it? It does. For women, for people with disabilities, for BAME colleagues, for people with religion that they want to be able to go and participate in at different times. Yeah. All of this is being impacted because of our resourcing issues. And I think chiefs know that that's the case. But it's very difficult for us to fix a problem when we haven't got the means to do it. You know, we all recognise that there's an issue there. It's just about how we're going to get it fixed. What would you say then to... I mean, there will be people listening to this, and I, I, I kind of alluded to it a second ago, going, oh, you know, for goodness sake, can we just get the best people for the job? We don't care whether they're male, female, gay, straight, Christian, Muslim, Jew... Black, white, anything at all. Just get the best person for the job and do the job. And let's, you know, quit all this, you know, messing around with we've got to tick that box and this box. Let's just get good cops on the street. That's what everybody wants. But I think the unseen difficulty with that is getting people to a level playing field in the first place to be able to access the roles and the jobs that they wish to do you know there's unseen barriers for people with protected characteristics of all protected characteristic groups that mean that they're just finding it difficult to get themselves to where they want to be and so they end up getting discouraged and um, perhaps disillusioned with what they've joined to do which is a real shame because there's so much to offer in that group of people and john you're you know as the chair uh, as the national chair do you do you sense things are allowing for everything peggy's just said do you sense things are Going in the right direction. I mean, there's clearly a lot of work to do, as there is in any organisation. And I suppose you could even unreasonably marshal an argument that says, you know, these things will always be an ongoing 
um, issue that you've got to keep a check on. Yeah, uh, But are you sensing progress? Uh, yeah, I am sensing progress. And, you know, I'll be honest, Ian, it's slower than I would want. Um, but I'm, I've taken, you know, I've taken the advice. You've got to walk be, uh, before you can run. Uh, we, we've got a strategy now. We've got an equality lead in Peggy who is driving the strategy. E- equality runs through everything we do. And, and I can imagine there will be some, some colleagues out there who will roll their eyes when I say that. Um, but it's true. And it's about, uh, you know, in the workplace, colleagues who are treated unfairly, um, whether because they've got a disability, because of the colour of their skin, um, because of uh, a, um, a, a hidden disability. And this is not me just saying it. This is fact because we represent those officers. And certainly the number of people we represent through uh, uh, discrimination through disability is increasing significantly. And I do think that's because a lot of the forces around there, a lot of the police forces, don't really know how to deal with people. Um, We are there to help and support as as a federation. But do I think that um, we are moving in the right direction? Absolutely. I think we focused, understandably, on on BAME officers, LGBT and and women in policing. Um, We need to make sure that we encompass all of those protected characteristics, as, as Peggy has said. And make sure that we work with with groups. And people have said to me, well, what does good look like? I don't know. I I don't know. You could say, well, good looks like maybe when you've got a a black female as the national chair of the police federation. Yeah, that could be good. Or it could be good when we're actually treating people fairly uh, and with dignity. And we've got a load of equality trained reps across England and Wales who are trained to the highest level. And I would encourage colleagues if they are feeling that they're being uh, not treated fairly or they want advice or they need support then reach out we are there to help and support i always like to mention i have done already but um, again people who aren't police officers who don't know how the federation works all of you guys are also serving police officers yes you don't completely put your uniform away john do you because you know we know you have been there is photographic evidence that you've actually there been is. seen out You've been on the beat. And mate. it still fits. And and my mates will say to me, how many uniforms do you have? Does it really still fit? It does still fit. Does I, I mean, you know, it's, well, relati- it's a bit snug. It's relatively new. A little bit snug. <laughs> it's a bit snug. Um, no, I'll tell you what, when, when I, I'm in a, the most privileged role, yeah. um, I really am. Elected by my peers, I've got a national board who support me and a national council. And just to explain, the national board are the regional reps um, and and people like Peggy, who's the equality lead, we have other other leads. Then you've got the National Council, who are the chairs, sex, and some others from around England and Wales, um, from from each local force. I'm in a privileged position, but what I never want to be, and I did this when I was the local chair in Hampshire, I don't want to become irrelevant. Um, I want to really understand um, the issues that our members face. Sure. Now I get emails, I get messages all the time. But when you sit alongside a colleague for 10 or 12 hours in a van with the uniform on, and I, and I think what works for me, I mean, we're a rankless organisation, the Police Federation, but I can't escape from the fact that by rank I'm a PC. I'm very proud to be a PC. So I think when I put the uniform on, the amount of people who say, oh, didn't realize, well, first of all, didn't realise you're a police officer. Uh, many of my friends tell me that I've not been a police officer for many years, but put that aside. And they didn't realise the rank. And when you sit alongside people... They open up to you. They talk to you. Yeah, it's a, and it and it's brilliant. It's and a bit that's of a revelation. So important. You went out recently with uh, the, the the guys in Brixton in South yeah. London. I noticed uh, a police officer tweeted, 
who works in that force. Why would you do that if you didn't have to? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I was invited. I, you I were was, invited. I, I was invi- I t- I'll tell you what brought that about. It was an exchange on social media. And there was an officer who said some stuff which I was really inspired by. I really liked it. And I reached out. Didn't know that, I didn't know where they worked. Um, and they, they asked me to go and work with them. And I said, yeah, that'd be a pleasure. Uh, didn't realise it was Brixton in London. Um, but went out for a, uh, for a, uh, a shift, a late shift. Um, and it was, it was eye-opening. I've never worked in that sort of environment. Um, but it was talking to the officers, talking to the teams, um, and it was it was really beneficial, really beneficial. Quite full on. It was full on. I mean, they said they said to me uh, they had a quiet shift. Blimey, it you know we, that was a quiet one. Yeah, I mean there was a yeah. there was a, an acid attack. There was a cash and transit robbery. There was a number of other assaults. There was a few public order uh, uh, incidents, but there was an awful. And what I was trying to trying to explain to the officers, they paraded with forty. 40 officers for a late shift still wasn't enough for for the volume they had but when they went to a job there was other units there with them and I was uh, I was talking to them about my own force in Hampshire and you know there's been times down in the New Forest Inn where I've been fighting with someone I've called for assistance and I've been waiting for them to come from Dorset um, wow, you know, and when you explain that, uh, the the officers who I was with, brilliant officers, I have to say, of all ranges of levels of service, they were saying, yeah, we we just can't get our heads around that because that's thankfully yeah. not what we have to put up with. I, and then the, a couple of weeks later, I was down in Devon and Cornwall working with a team down there on a late shift, completely different pressures, but the pressure that those officers were under, the demand that they were dealing with, proportionate wise was exactly the same. So it's, the, it's depending on where you are, the demands are just absolutely. slightly... Absolutely. They're, the, they're all as intense, but they're just slightly different. But the pressures that they're under... Yeah. Um, but And this is what I do, and it's not a gimmick. I don't always put on social media when I'm out and about on patrol. Sure. Um, it's about making sure that I'm still relevant to the members and also that they can reach out to the National Chair. And what comes out of those visits is I do... It, it's a bit like a, a drop-in surgery, so a number of officers will come and see me during the visit... And they might have issues, and I will help if I can. Perfect. Um, that is it for this episode. Thank you, Peggy. Thank you. Good to see you. John, thank you, as ever. Pleasure. We will see you on the next episode. A reminder, of course, if you have a question you want to put to John on the next programme, then make sure you follow the Police Federation on Twitter. You can also email any questions into. Um, absolutely important you remember you can subscribe to this podcast to make sure you get each episode automatically on your phone or your computer. Just hit the subscribe button now. It is, of course, free. That goes without saying, but just a reminder. And, of course, you can listen via the Federation website too. Until the next time, goodbye.